When I was in college, way back in the 1900s, I needed a life science credit for my Bible degree because that's how liberal arts colleges work. And I didn't want to cut open any little critters or anything and see their guts and everything. I decided to go with botany, the study of plants. And I thought it was fascinating. I didn't think I'd like it, and I took to it right away. I I was out there identifying different trees and all these things. And I actually wound up with a favorite flower, which is something that neither I nor anyone who ever knew me thought I would ever have. And, And it was one that I saw when we were out on a trip, and our professor pointed it out to us, and he said, watch this. This flower is called a Himalayan balsam, also known as touch me not. And he pointed to these beautiful, beautiful pink-purple petals and, and, and flowers. And then he said, but look beyond those to these seed pods. Have you ever seen these touch-me-nots? They have these long, skinny seed pods. And if you touch them even just a tiny little bit, they explode and shoot seeds all over. They can actually shoot seeds as far as 20 feet sometimes. And it's so fun. And then from then on, whenever I saw one of these things, whoever I was with, I'd be like, watch this. This is called a touch me not. See these little seed pods? And I would touch it just a tiny little bit, and it would explode. I was like Johnny Appleseed with these things, man. I was spreading the touch me nots all over. And then a few years ago, I learned that they're invasive. They're really bad for our ecosystem and everything. They're pushing out the natural wildflowers of Michigan that belong here. And and they're really bad for erosion along riverbanks. And I've been like an environmental disaster walking around exploding these little things. And I should have known not to do it. It's right there in the name. Touch me not. In my mind, I would look at them and I would hear them calling to me like, hey, do the thing. And then we'll go, I should have been hearing like, hey. Don't touch me. Touch me not. Touch me not. Right? Now, I bring this up because I think of the touch me nots every time I read the Easter story. There's a moment here that in my mind doesn't really fit in, at least the first many times that I read it. For years, I would read this passage in John 20, this beautiful passage I've preached on many times, when Jesus appears to Mary and she is weeping weeping because Jesus is dead and now Jesus' body is missing and he comes up behind her and says, woman, why are you weeping? And she doesn't recognize him. She turns the sons behind him or she's just completely in her own head and she says, sir, if you're the gardener and you've moved this body, tell me where and then I'll go and I'll get him and I'll bring him back where he goes. And he says her name, Mary. And she recognizes him and she says, Rabboni. And she Grabs, grabs his legs or grabs his feet and, and begins to worship him. And this is where he says to her in the King James, touch me not, for I have not yet returned to my father. Touch me not. Or in the NIV, it says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to my father. The New American Standard, which most of the time is the best or second best rendering, Jesus says to her, stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Stop clinging to me. Sounds like what my older sister would say to me when I was annoying her. Hey, stop clinging to me. I have not yet returned to my Father. This seems to me, when I read it, like it sticks out because it's the opposite of sort of the vibe of Easter that I have in my mind. It's the the opposite of of what the sense I have of what the, the cross and the empty tomb signify for us and have accomplished for us. That we should be able to come to him now and hold firm to him and and hold fast to him. Why is it that he says, do not touch me or do not 
cling to me. Plus, there's the reasoning, because I haven't yet ascended to the Father. Now, we know that Jesus is going to ascend and and sit at the right hand of the Father. It's it's in the, the core creed of every Christian church. And yet, it seems to me that if, if Mary is going to hang on to him, she's going to have to do it before that. Right? Once he's ascended to the Father, you've missed your chance. Now you're going to have to wait until you go to him or he returns. And you're not even going to be able to see him, much less touch him. Reach out and touch him. Now, we're going to look at why Jesus says this. And it's going to be fascinating for you. And I might just blow your mind, maybe not, but maybe, but I have to ask you and, and beg of you just to bear with me while we get into some of this kind of the, the deepness of the Old Testament. And I'm not talking about the exciting, weird Old Testament where, you know, Ehud makes the sword and puts it on his thigh and stabs King Eglon and escapes through the sewers. And you go, oh, the Old Testament's so exciting. I'm talking about Leviticus, where it's like, then you shall take the sheaf and wave it before the Lord, and you shall... And you're reading it, and you're going, okay, God, I know it's the Bible. I know it must have some meaning to my life today. Well, hopefully, we'll help a little bit with that as well. Now, when we're talking about the time of year when Jesus was crucified and rose again, we always call it Passover, and that is correct. Passover was happening at this time, but we could also just call it the holidays, In the same way that people will say happy holidays or it was around the holidays when they're talking about December. Because it wasn't just Passover. This was the time of the spring holidays in the Israelite calendar. We had several spring festivals. There was Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a week long. They were kind of smooshed together in one sort of big party. And then either in the middle of that or occasionally right after would be the Feast of First Fruits. And then seven weeks later, you would have Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. Now, you've probably heard plenty about Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, etc. You know what that is. You know, undoubtedly, if you've been in the Word, or if you've been going to church, or even if you're just kind of cognizant of the zeitgeist around you, you know what Passover is. You can read about unleavened bread and say, yes, I understand how that connects with Jesus and with the Last Supper and all these things. But you probably, if you're anything like me, haven't heard nearly as much about the Feast of First Fruits. This is an important one on Resurrection Sunday. And of course, all these feasts, all of these Old Testament things, when you're reading about in Leviticus and you're, and you're getting like, I got to step it up. I'm getting behind on my Bible reading plan. Remind yourself, Jesus fulfills all of them. And if you can find a good aid to help you see how Jesus fulfills all of them, they kind of come to life. Certainly, it's easy for us to see how Jesus fulfills Passover, and I preach on this in different aspects of it every single year. A couple of years ago on Palm Sunday, which was last Sunday, uh, a couple of years ago, I preached about how uh, that day was the day Jewish families would choose their Passover lamb and bring it in. And, of course, that was the day that Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem as the Passover lamb, as the people wave their palm branches and cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, in the highest... Christ fulfills the Passover itself. He is put to death as our Passover lamb. As John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is perfectly typified in that lamb. He has no blemish. He is sinless. Even the the minutia of it, right? He's killed in a way where not one bone is broken. That was specified in the, the laying out of how Passover should be observed. And then when they went to go break the legs of all of the criminals on the crosses, they got to Jesus and he was already dead and they didn't break his legs. Of course, most importantly, his blood was shed for us. 
There was the Passover lamb that was slain in Egypt, and then the blood was painted onto the doorposts and the, the lentils. And Jesus' blood is applied to us, not so that God's wrath will pass over for a time, but in order to actually wash away our sins and take away our sins, because this is God himself in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So on Good Friday, our Passover lamb was sacrificed. And of course, there are several different ways that people have worked out which day of Holy Week is which thing because it's a movable feast. It's not always on the same day of the week. I could get into that, but I won't bore you. I won't, I won't bore you with that. Maybe I'll bore you with other things. But we do know for certain when the Feast of First Fruits was on that week. Because the Feast of First Fruits was always the day after the Sabbath in the midst of that week of celebration. So the Sabbath would have been Holy Saturday when Jesus lay dead in the tomb, when we would think probably he was preaching to those souls in prison, etc., etc. And then what day would be the Feast of First Fruits, the day after the Sabbath? Anyone? Right, it would have been the day Jesus rose from the dead. He rose the dead on the Feast of of first fruits. And so that tells us something interesting, some, some context, some color for this story, that as Joanna and the various Marys are leaving the house super early to go to the tomb of Jesus, they've got all these things they're going to use, they're going to anoint his body, embalm his body, because it's been done by guys in a hurry and they don't trust that it's been done right. Let's just call it what it is. And as they're on their way there, it tells us that also heads of households all over Jerusalem were waking up and preparing a first fruits offering that they would then walk up the steps of the temple during the hour of the morning offering and present to the Lord. Leviticus 23 describes quite in detail what this would look like. Barley, of course, was harvested in the spring. Israelites would present the first sheaf that they pulled from that harvest as an offering to God. And until they'd done that, they could not eat or sell or do anything or even harvest any of the rest of the crop. Exodus 34 tells us this, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. So that first portion of your crop, you say, that's ready to go. This can be first fruits. You find the best part you're going to bring to God. They took that first slash best sheaf of barley before a priest who presented it as a wave offering, which means he took it, waved it north and south, east and west, and then he would, before the Lord, say, this is for you. This is an offering for your glory. Then that same sheaf was ground into flour and offered as a grain offering on the altar, along with a burnt offering, which was an unblemished male lamb, and a drink offering, which was wine poured out on it. We could go so deep in this, it would take forever. I'm going to trust you to look into it later, or come and, and set up coffee with me, and we'll talk about it at length. But the point here is that not only is this something perfectly typifying and prefiguring Christ for centuries, millennia, but it's tied closely to Passover. It is about trust. Think about this. You've got this little bit of your, your harvest, of your crop. This is what you know you're going to have. Who knows what's going to happen after this? There may be a drought. 
There may be a horrible wind and rain or hail that comes through. There might be a swarm of locusts that decimates it. Maybe this will be all there is. You're showing a great act of faith by bringing what we know we will have before the Lord, grinding it up and offering it to him. Just as when they, in the initial Passover, and, and as they left Egypt and followed God out into the wilderness, we're saying, we trust that wherever you're leading us, there's going to be something for us to eat and something for us to drink. It was also a pledge. The offering was a token of the whole harvest. The whole harvest then belonged in its entirety to God. From the moment that sheaf was waved before him and offered before him, that first fruits, every head, every seed of that crop was then dedicated to God and sanctified and consecrated by him. And it wasn't just a pledge from the people to God, but from God to the people, saying to all of them, this won't be it. It's a pledge of a greater harvest to come. So how is it then that this First Fruits Festival prefigures Jesus' resurrection and is fulfilled by his resurrection on that Easter morning, that First Fruits morning. Well, again, every little aspect of it we can go into. The wave offering. The wave offering. Waving is what? In, in biblical thought, it is a sign of worship and triumph. As Jesus came in, they waved palm branches, worshiping him and, and indicating his triumph, his victory. Well, they didn't quite understand it, but now they would. And this is the ultimate triumph that we see here, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think all of these prophetic principles from these festivals kind of coalesce and come together here in the Feast of first fruits, which is why it's so important that we look at it. In fact, I'm going to read a little from Leviticus 2, everyone's favorite chapter. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering, first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, that they shall be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain, and you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. We see here all sorts of symbolism of Christ's death and resurrection. The unleavened bread, of course, Christ is not uh, filled with the leaven of the Pharisees. This, this picture of sin, this picture of the corrupt continuity that has crept into the system of belief. He is unblemished. He has not sinned. He has been in every way tempted as you and I have been tempted, but has not given in. He is like that grain offering, beaten and sifted. Remember at, at the Last Supper, when Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, for all of you. Peter has said, I'm, I'm going to get between you and the mob. Don't worry, I've got my sword here, and I will get between you and danger. And Jesus says, I've already gotten between you and danger. I'm standing between you and Satan. I'll be the one who is sifted and beaten instead of you. Oil will be poured on it. The idea of anointing, of course, the word Mashiach in Hebrew, Messiah, means anointed one. He'll have the spirit and he'll be anointed of the Lord to be a sweet smelling aroma offered to the father. But when Paul talks about this fulfilling of the first fruits festival, which is what we heard as the, the last text there in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that Jesus himself 
is the first fruits. The first fruits of those who are born from among the dead. Now, the context, of course, of that, we heard a good portion of it, verses 1 through 28. What's going on is Paul is talking about the eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Christ and the centrality of the resurrection. It's like the center Jenga piece that if you pull it out, all the rest comes pouring down, crashing down. And yet we see things like a tweet I saw just yesterday from a seminary professor slash president saying, Happy Easter. You can believe in resurrection without believing in a bodily resurrection. Faith is more than adherence to rigid doctrine. Okay, well, we have here this hedging against what if it's not true? I don't want to be pitied above all men. Paul says we will be. If it's not true, we are to be pitied above all men, but it is true, he says here. In fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. And if he hasn't, then we should be pitied. But if he has, and he has, then it's the so-called Christian doing pretzel shapes to avoid such a belief that is to be pitied. We read passages like this in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Then he moves on to this first fruits stuff. This isn't new for Paul. He's already going to say in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. He says when he is before King Agrippa, Moses and the prophets have testified that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And you might say, wait a minute, how is he the first to be raised from the dead? The firstborn from the dead. What about the other people in the Bible who've been raised from the dead? What about the widow's son in Zarephath in the Old Testament that Elijah raises from the dead? Or the widow's son in Nain in the New Testament that Jesus raises from the dead? Or Jairus' daughter? Or Lazarus? Well, none of these were true resurrections in the sense that Jesus is resurrected. They're temporary restorations, resuscitations. All of those people lived for a while more and then died again. I remember watching a television show I used to be really into. It took place in a hospital. And there was this speech that one of the, the top doctors gave to the interns and residents. And he said, listen, everything we do here, everything at our best is just one long stall. Eventually, the Grim Reaper wins in the end every single time. Which is a bit of a downer to think about. But it is not true with Christ's resurrection. And it is not true, according to 1 Corinthians 15, with ours. And this brings us back to the touch-me-not passage. When Jesus said to one of his closest friends and dearest disciples, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet returned to my Father. Let me read the whole thing here, verses 12 through 18, just, just to give you a little context, and just because it's a great excuse to read it here on Easter morning. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I have not known where they have laid him. 
Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So he says to Mary, do not touch me or do not cling to me. And then Matthew, in Matthew 28, which was read for us earlier in the service, he tells us that about an hour or a little more later, Jesus meets several women on the road, says to them, greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They cling to him. And he says to them, not don't touch me, not do not cling to me, but rather do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. What do we have here? A contradiction in the Bible? Many skeptics would want us to think so. In fact, the Easter story is where most skeptics want to go to try and find a lot of contradictions and, and try and debunk the, the core of our faith. Of course, if this is a contradiction, there are many more. Jesus, a little while later, but a week later, he, he appears and, and when Thomas is there, he, doesn't not, he not only says, you can touch me, but he encourages him, put your finger in the holes in my hands, put your hand in my side, stop doubting and believe. So there's possibly a contradiction on the line. And what do we make of the reason that he gives? When he says, I have not yet ascended. In fact, that's almost always how this word is translated, tying it to the idea of Jesus' ascension into heaven. But I am going to suggest to you that that's not what he was talking about at all. He was not saying, don't hold on to me because I haven't yet ascended to stay there at the right hand of the Father and make intercession on your behalf until I come again. And I'm going to mention Greek a little bit here. And don't use the channel clicker in your head to go somewhere else. Just bear with me. Power through. Because there are different Greek words at work here. When we're told about Jesus actually ascending into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, for example, the word is epiro. And it says he was lifted up. Someone lifted him up. Well, it was the spirit. He's lifted up. He, he was lifted up before them. Luke 24. It's the word anaphero. Again, it means to be taken up or lifted up. He was lifted up. He was taken up before them. Here, it's the word anabino, a very plain word. It's a very vanilla word. It just means to go up. It's used more than 80 times in the New Testament. And it's used in all sorts of different contexts. To go up a mountain. To go up to Jerusalem. That's very common. Or the inverse in Jesus' story about the Good Samaritan. Someone was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You go up. Because your calves hurt when you get there. You went up. It doesn't mean go north. It means go up. Or people go up to the temple to worship. And that is incredibly common in the scriptures. You go up because it's on Mount Zion. It is up in altitude. But also you go up because in a sense you are going up into the presence of God to worship him. So what is it that Jesus needs to do when he talks to Mary and says, do not touch me, that he's apparently already done when he talks to the women on the road and they cling to him and he says, don't be afraid. Well, it's that Jesus had to present himself 
as the first fruits offering and as the high priest making the first fruits offering. And you say, well, why wouldn't he have done that before any of this? Why wouldn't he have done it during the three days? Well, it's, it's got to be done on the day of first fruits because he's fulfilling this feast. And it would be done during the hour of the morning sacrifice, or the morning offering, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Remember, they left before the sun was even up, and it was very early when they first came to him. And you might think I'm grasping here, but read about Pentecost, when, when that feast is fulfilled in the book of Acts, chapter 2. What time is it? They're all together, they're gathered together at the time of the morning offering to offer prayer and worship in the upper room. The tongues of fire appear, and then they start preaching, and everyone says, you're drunk! And they say, it's, we're not drunk, it's nine in the morning. It happens at the appointed hour. He says to them, you go to my brothers, you women, and I'm going up, same word, only in the present tense, I'm going up to my father and your father, to my God and your God. I'm presently going up to my father. That's what I'm doing now. Well, you are going to my brothers. It can't be the ascension he's talking about. That's 40 days later. It's not present. And I'm not, I'm not freewheeling here. Several church fathers, both in the East and West, similarly tie this remark of Jesus to Mary with the idea of Christ presenting himself as the first fruits. Some have suggested that he literally just goes up to the temple itself and there presents himself. But Hebrews chapter 9 seems to indicate a much greater trip, a far bigger thing happening. Jesus ascended to a much higher temple to bring a much greater offering to the greater presence of God as the greater high priest with an infinitely greater promise attached. In Hebrews 9 we read this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He went into the presence of God himself to offer what had been accomplished for us. For Christ has entered, the apostle goes on, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I think we even read about this foreshadowed hundreds of years, 700 years earlier in the book of Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the first 
fruits. But there's a promise now that more will come. And I think we even see this first fruits of the Spirit. It was that very night, that first fruits night, that first Easter night, that Jesus appeared to the disciples. They were in a locked room, and suddenly, there he is. And we read that on that evening, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Some have also pointed to this as a contradiction. Did Jesus give the Holy Spirit on Easter or did he give it on Pentecost? 50 days later, seven weeks later. Well, the answer is he gives them the first fruits of the Spirit on the Feast of First Fruits. And then on Pentecost, seven weeks later, seven meaning completion or perfection, he fulfills it just as the, the Feast of Pentecost had always fulfilled the Feast of First Fruits. So the significance of Christ fulfilling this thing goes beyond proving the dead can be raised. Christ's resurrection was not just a mighty display of power, although it was that, something in the past that we point back to. By raising Christ from the dead, God shows that he accepted the offering Jesus made. It's something that affects the present. Because Jesus was accepted on our behalf, we are accepted of God too. Remember, from the moment that that first sheaf those first fruits was brought into God's presence, the whole harvest was dedicated and the whole harvest was consecrated. And we too are sanctified because Jesus, our first fruits, was presented before the Father. This is what we mean when we quote Romans 4.25, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's about the present, but it goes even beyond that into the future. Because again, the first fruit was a promise, a pledge. This is a promise that the rest of the harvest will follow. That when Jesus rose from the dead, this isn't it. There will be much more to come. Many more will be raised. The resurrection does not just give us a new perspective to sort of change how we see the world. A reminder to look for the light at the end of the tunnel or the light in the midst of darkness. It's an actual promise that the days of darkness will come to an end, are even now coming to an end. That is why throughout this chapter and elsewhere in the scriptures, Paul refers to those who have died in Christ as those who have fallen asleep. Not that they're in soul sleep and they're not aware of anything, but that their bodies rest awaiting the resurrection. And then finally, in these last few verses of our text, he makes this, this contrast between the, the first Adam and the second Adam. He says, for by a man came death, and by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Both were first fruits of a great harvest. The first Adam in his sin brought a harvest of death. And the second Adam in his resurrection brings a harvest of life. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead incorruptible, rising as our representative just as Adam fell as our representative. But which one is more powerful? Is it Adam's death or Christ's resurrection? Well, that's a no-brainer. 
Adam's death could not bind Christ. The tomb could not hold him. But Christ's resurrection could and did free even Adam from the chains of death. And of course, when we say that in Adam all died and in Christ all shall be made alive, verse 23 makes it clear he's not teaching universalism, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. Those who belong to Christ will be raised again. Those who belong to Christ is who Jesus is talking about in John 11 when he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It's those who belong to Christ who the apostle is talking about in Hebrews 10 when he writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let me ask you this on this Easter Sunday. Are you one of those who is paid for in Jesus Christ? Are you one who has put your faith in him and him alone for salvation? When he was presented before the Father as the firstfruits of those who had fallen asleep, of the firstborn from among the dead, was he foreshadowing and promising your resurrection? If you don't know, today is a perfect and beautiful day to put your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. To say to him, I have sinned, I know I have sinned, I can't erase my sin, I can't make up for my sin, I can't do enough good works to counterbalance my sin, but I can be forgiven by the blood of the Lamb, and I can be raised again on the last day, and I can come boldly with confidence into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Feast of first fruits. We don't often think about it, but Lord, it is fulfilled as all of these feasts are in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have this pledge, this promise, that there will be many more resurrections, a harvest of them, and that we will be among those. I pray, Lord, if there is anyone here who feels your spirit calling them, pulling them to you, that they would even now put their faith in you, trust you for salvation, and know that they are spoken for in Jesus Christ, that the blood of the spotless lamb unleavened, unblemished, the one who is broken for us, though not one bone was broken, the one who fulfills all of that Old Testament sacrificial system and does it all once for all, dying on a cross never to be repeated. Lord, we know that it is finished. And we pray that anyone here who does not know that their sin has been put to death and put an end to, that Lord, you would draw them to yourself. We pray that we would together worship you and follow you And know that even now we can cling to you and you won't say stop clinging to me. You have returned to the right hand of the Father and there you sit and make intercession for us day and night. What a good, amazing, powerful, loving, gracious God you are. We thank you for this beautiful Easter Sunday when together we say he is risen, he is risen indeed. Amen.